Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Thanks for coming by for another week. Uh, we have great people by every week, including you. This week we have two very special guests. If you look at the credits that are usually written sort of on the side and kind of upside down near iconic photographs of people like Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Michelle Obama, Andy Warhol, Sting, Bruce Springsteen, Brian Adams, Cher, Bob Marley, Ray Charles, The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Mark Wahlberg, David Bowie, The Beatles, Paul McCartney, Yoko Ono, it goes on and on and on. You will often see the name Lynn Goldsmith. She has been one of the leading rock and roll photographers for 50 years, more than that. She was a childhood friend of Jim Osterberg, AKA Iggy Pop. She is someone who not only takes rock and roll photographs, but takes photographs of some of the leading figures in and out of pop culture. She's still very active. She stops by to talk about Iggy Pop, to talk about praying with Bono, to talk about all sorts of very cool stuff that you don't want to miss. First up though, let's meet Rachel McAdams. Eh, we don't need to meet Rachel McAdams. We all know Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams is a movie star. Rachel McAdams in movies like Mean Girls, The Notebook became a star. Right now she's headlining the Doctor Strange movie. It's a big Marvel movie. Uh, this is something I think that may change things for her because I don't know, she plays Dr. Christine Palmer now, but I don't know if she goes on to become Night Nurse, which is what happened with the character in the comic books. If that happens, we may be seeing her in Marvel movies for a long time to come. I couldn't get her to tell me. I did a thing called Facebook Live with her uh, a week or so ago. In it, I asked her some of my own questions and I asked her some questions from the fans. Uh, and this is what happened. Were you able to relate any real life experiences uh, into your role? Was there anything from your life that you brought to the role of Christine? Uh, well, my mother is a nurse. Mm -hmm. um, I was playing a doctor, but, um, and she's a very kind of compassionate nurse. And Christine is sort of that way as a doctor as well. She has excellent bedside manner as opposed to Dr. Strange. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of took a page from my mom. Yeah. Did you, did you uh, talk to her? Or was that sort of by osmosis? Um, well, I've been talking to her my whole life yeah. about it in a way. Yeah, um, she come home and tell, you know, and she kind of brought her job home sometimes. She was that kind of a very caring nurse. Right. And I think Christine is, is the same. So I picked it up over the years. Uh, one of my questions, uh, Stephen Strange and Christine have a really interesting relationship. And this doesn't give anything away, but we kind of meet you at the end of, of what I think is probably a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. um, what did that lend to the character was that interesting for you to play because it's a different dynamic mm -hmm. yeah it was a much less typical mm -hmm. love um, trajectory and uh and i think because we had so few scenes to establish our relationship right. it was a it was a better jumping off point we had a lot more sort of subterranean life and right. you know um a, a much richer history for the characters and let's talk a little bit about working with benedict cumberbatch uh on this um how did you work together before the movie actually started shooting, or did you? We did get rehearsals, mm -hmm. which is a luxury now in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> so we spent, a, uh, I think, a week before we, we were well. shooting together, just talking it out in a room and, um, you know, going over the script and, yeah. Did you know him before? 
I did not. I no. just admired him from afar. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think it is that, that he brings? We'll talk about Christine some more uh, in just a second, but what is it that he brings to this? Because uh, he's not a typical superhero. No, yeah. no, which is great, which is, I think, so much about this mm -hmm. comic book film is is not typical and fresh, um, including him. I, I think everyone knows what an awesome actor he is. He's just... Um, he's such a chameleon, and um, but he's he's very funny too. So he brought a levity to uh, a character that could have been very overly dark and intense. Um, but I think it's his humility, really. He's playing this character who has an incredibly big ego that gets in his way, and um, and but Benedict himself, who has every right to have a huge ego, <laughs> um, is so humble and um, yeah. Well, it's interesting because when you started shooting, I've got it in my notes here somewhere, he had just come off playing Hamlet like a week before and he was learning lines for the new Sherlock or something while you were still shooting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really quite something. It's extraordinary. He's an animal. I mean, he really is. He's a machine. And he's very fit and um, he was working out through the whole thing. And But yes, I mean, Chuatel went and I went and saw him doing Hamlet and I'm thinking... And then he's a doctor the next week, and then yeah, I, he's he you know he's figured out some of that Doctor Strange magic or something because right. he's trained his his mind. He's focused the mystic powers. He yes, he's a Zen master. <laughs> we'll uh, go back to the fan questions now. Who's your favorite Marvel superhero aside from Doctor Strange? Well, I I now have a newfound love and respect for um, the Ancient One, Tilda Swinton. Right. Um, uh, interpretation of the ancient one, I think, is really exciting and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's uh, she brings something really interesting uh, to the character. It's kind yeah. of there's an androgyny to the character, yeah. uh, and and something. I mean, clearly, she's not 700 years old in real life, no. but she brings something that that feels like there's a, a great deal of wisdom yes. within the character. And she's so timeless herself yeah. that you know. Anyway, it's a, it was a perfect casting. And uh, what was your favorite location for filming, Doctor? strange. I was in the basement of a hospital most of the time, so, uh, <laughs> um, which was interesting. Uh, the apartment looked really nice. The apartment, that was all built. <laughs> was, was it? That wasn't real? Stage. No. See, I mean, that disappoints me a little bit, because that looks like a fantastic place. <laughs> I know, I would love to actually live in that apartment, but, um, yeah, but I mean, they put, like, real scratch marks in the floor to right. make, give it that age, and uh, yeah, it was an extraordinarily built set, but not real. We're not going to give anything away about the movie, but there is a scene uh, in the basement, I guess, of the hospital where you are, mm -hmm. uh, where there's some supernatural, mystical things happening. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, shooting a movie that must have had, were there green screens? How did, uh, like, uh, was there anything actually there? Were you responding to the mystical elements? I'm trying to talk around it so we don't give anything away. Right. But were you yeah. responding to the mystical elements that we see in the in the thing? Or were you like looking at a golf ball or a tennis, tennis ball, ball with right, eyes yeah. or something? Not too many tennis balls with eyes. I was fortunate. Um, Benedict was very generous in that he got up on those wires for hours at a time wow. and flew around the room himself. <laughs> no stunt double. Um, so he was... Uh, he made my job a lot easier that way. Yeah. And, the, and the prop masters rig things up in that room on like um, fishing wire right. and 
pulled it around and things went crashing down. So there was lots for me to react to. So is it kind of like a, a, like a dance, a choreography, when you're learning a, a, a scene like that, there's a lot going on, and I guess you learn it, you think of it as a dance. As a maybe. dance, exactly. That's a perfect way to describe it. Um, they sh show you uh, pre-visualization where mm -hmm. it's kind of mocked up on a, on a, on a computer. Right. And this is, you know, hopefully what it, kind of what it'll look <laughs> like. And then it's, and then you finally see it, the finished right. product, and it's, you know, even ten times better. So. And how long is it in between when you shoot to you see? Do you go to dailies? Or is there anything to see in the dailies? Or do you wait till it's done and then you go to the premiere and you're like, you can watch it and be amazed like everybody else? Uh, I, I didn't go to dailies. They don't, we don't have dailies anymore. There's no dailies There's anymore? There's no dailies. There's, you know, it used to be everyone would go into a yeah. room like this and watch the footage from the day and, and modern technology has taken us away from that. So I guess you see it on video or something almost right away or do you not? Or do you not see anything? I, I would look at stuff on the day if, mm -hmm. if we were struggling to, you know, to get something really exact or because there were more visual effects, there were, you know, were things where you had to be in a certain position or something right. and Scott would, you know, show me what he wanted. But mostly I don't watch it because I feel like it just gets you in my head It about plays it. with your head. Yeah. So you play doctor, and uh, to train for that, you talk to your mom. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also had to learn to convincingly sew up sutures and things. And right. I've heard some funny stories about how you uh, arranged that. How did you learn how to do that? Uh, well, uh, this great doctor we had, a neurosurgeon we had on set with us, he, he taught me how to sew up a raw turkey breast. <laughs> that, I guess, was the best thing, closest thing to a real-life human being. Poor turkeys. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then oranges, which was easier the, to carry in my purse. Yep. Um, yeah. And less gross, frankly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Less, yeah. better smell. So, <laughs> um, and then I had a, uh, like a fake head. I could practice really? on, and, and it was kind of like knitting. Like I would just right. sort of take the suture stuff around and put it on a light stand while we were shooting and just practice it that way. Well, I heard you use doorknobs too or something. Yeah, and, I still and have some around my doorknobs. Really? At home. I just haven't gotten around to cutting them off yet. Yeah. And how long did it take you to make it? Because it has to look like you really know what you're doing. Right. So how long did it take? Is it just something that while you're sitting around watching television, you take an orange out and, yeah, and, and I, sew? Yeah, I was really nervous about it because um, I, I thought it was going to take forever. And right. it's just one of those things, once you get the hang of it, right. and then it's kind of fun to do. So you could do it too. <laughs> I could. Yeah. I can't sew. I can't mm -hmm. do any of those things, but I could learn. <laughs> I could learn. Uh, did you go back to the comic books at all? Because Christine in the film is a little different, I think, than the Christine in the comic books. Except yeah. there's, a, a, there's a, an issue called The Oath, yes. which I understand you read. Right. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that and what it lent to the character. Um, if anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, she is an amalgamation of, of a couple of characters, so it gave us um, a, a fair, a lot of creative freedom. We were really sort of inventing something um, in the in the comic book. She's she's more of a nurse, and in these she's you know this she's she's a doctor, and um, so I kind of looked at the source material more for um, the flavor of the world and Doctor Strange himself, and and less less so for my character. I found that watching this movie, it felt like a comic book movie. It feels like a comic book kind of come to life, and you'll find out when you get to see it in a, in a week, but uh, it, it, it feels like a comic book come to life, and that's, that's something great. I think that the fans are really going to respond to. Yeah, so. well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought so, too. <laughs> um, I, I hear that when you sign on to do a Marvel movie, that they send over 
tons of comic books. They send over everything that might have anything to do with the universe that you're going to be inhabiting. Did you get that? It's not in your contract <laughs> to get them all. I did get some of them, but I right. didn't get probably because I'm not in right. all of them, or you know these 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 various characters were not in all of them. But um, I did get some. Of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you've been around the world, right? You've been in the last few weeks. You've been everywhere to promote this film. I'm seeing pictures of you on red carpets all over the place. How are the fans responding? The people that have seen it, and how are they responding to you? Because once you're in one of these movies, you are now part of that universe right. and they take that very seriously right right yes <laughs> um, um, I mean it's it seems like everyone really loves it I had a bunch of my friends came to the LA screening which was the world premiere and they're at Grimman's Chinese Theater right at, oh yeah, El exactly. Capitan yeah yes yeah at the Chinese Theater yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's called something else now yeah other than Grimman's yeah um, yeah so um, but anyway, and they're tough customers mm -hmm. and die-hard comic fans. Right. And I was really nervous, actually. M more nervous about them watching it than anybody else. And they seem to love it. And mm. they don't um, kind of, um, you know, make that up. So they were my barometer. And, um, and everyone just seems to have really had a good time watching right. it. And, and, uh, and I, I really loved it. And I find it hard to, you know, get swept away in a film that I'm in because you know, you know you're how it ends. At a different, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I actually jumped at one point in my own scene. I my friend beside me was laughing because he it's like, you knew that was coming. I'm like, I know, but I was still wrapped up in it. So um, it is a really wild ride and, and um, yeah, and, and it's for the future of it. I, you know, I don't know exactly where it's going to go and I can't say much about that, but um, hopefully, when, it, you know, people love it. When things get mystical, it's, it's visually, it's really mm, wild. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's cutting edge it is. stuff, yeah. Let's get back to the fan questions. Okay. Uh, what has impressed you most about the other actors of Doctor Strange? Oh. Oh, goodness. Um, so much. Uh, I feel like, um, well, Tilda and Benedict are, they're, there's something very spiritual about this film, and they're very spiritual people, and I, I feel like um, they've really brought a lot of themselves well, to the part. Well, Benedict taught at a Buddhist school or something in right. Nepal, didn't he? I think, you he's know, when like he was a teenager. He's like on the cover of Buddhism Now, or is he? I don't know what the <laughs> magazine is, but yeah, he's a, he's a true believer, yeah. and, um, and so I believe, I don't know, I think we've got a bunch of really good people on this show, and I, I think that comes through, bleeds through into the characters. So we just have time for one more question, and let me just look and make sure that we can end with a boom here. Uh, <laughs> um, the takeaways about uh, from this movie. Um, it's a big movie that you can go and sit back and enjoy and let your eyeballs dance all the way mm. through because it's so visually something. But it's really about basic things. It's about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It's about letting your ego go. It's about a lot of things. So do you hope that people sit back and, and think about all that stuff or do you just hope they go have a really great time at the movies? Or a combination a of A combination, yeah. yeah. Why not have it all? I mean, this is a really ambitious film on the page. And um, I think it ticks a lot of those boxes that people are hoping for when they go to a, a, see a big blowout Marvel film. But there's a quiet, um, deep emotion that runs through it that I think might catch people off guard. Yeah. Um, we, I don't think it hits people over the head with it, so it's, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a really intelligent, um, fun 
film. About yeah. finding out what's really important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that we're in this together. That's Rachel McAdams suturing up turkey breasts to play Dr. Christine Palmer in Doctor Strange. You can see that movie on every single movie screen in your neighborhood and in the neighborhood next to that and next to that and next to that. Big movie, big Marvel movie. Uh, and she's really great in it. Now, I gave you a quick overview of Lynn Goldsmith uh, briefly earlier. She is someone whose career cannot be summed up in a five-minute introduction. She's someone whose career could barely be summed up in the 40 minutes or so that we talked. I cut the interview down a little bit. Here's about half an hour of Lynn Goldsmith talking about everyone, from Patti Smith to Debbie Harry to Bono. But what did you think you were going to do with your life? I believed in all. That's a good question. And <laughs> I, uh, I think I thought I'd either be an actress, um, an inventor, or um, uh, I don't know. An uh, astronaut, no, maybe. No, no, no. More like a cowgirl. Really? Yeah, because of Princess Summer, Fall, Winter, Spring. You know, when you're little, you fall in love with Howdy Doody. Yep. And I actually thought I looked like him, so <laughs> it was safer for me to identify with Princess Summer, Fall, Winter, Spring than with Howdy Doody. And so by the time you get to college then, what happens? Because you've been playing music. You were in bands. Yes. I, I had uh, – when I was 14, we moved from Detroit to Miami Beach, and um, I used to sing in coffee houses in Coral Gables, and I wrote songs. Uh, but I never really thought that I would grow up to be, quote, unquote, in show business right. because my grandfather had always said, show business, <laughs> and a little spit would come out of his mouth. And I would say, Grandpa, why do you feel this way about them? And he would say, they're terrible people. And, um, you know, he, he was right. <laughs> he definitely was right. But um, the fact is that it's a whole lot of fun, even if there's some terrible people. And pretty much that's true in uh, any area of life. Do you remember the songs you wrote? Were they folk songs? Was that is that what oh, we're talking about walk here? Walk right in, sit right yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. And, and the songs that you wrote were they kind of did they sound like that, or were you what were you looking to at that moment? I went through various stages mm -hmm. because when I was uh, very little and uh, lived in Detroit, and my parents uh, were divorced at a very early age, which was unusual. Yeah. Um, I was uh, four, and. Uh, at that time, my mother had what I thought was a sacred uh, a place in her room where she played records. Wow. And so I had, you know, I would spend time with my mom, and you had to handle those 78 RPM and 33 and a third. Well, and the 78s were brittle, too, right? So you yeah. had to be fairly careful and with And before those. that, yeah. there was a 30, I think it was 33 and a third, yeah. my, grand, my grandparents' records. So that was a very special time. And then along came... Um, uh, the transistor radio, and my dad bought me a turquoise one. Wow. And at that time, there were all these um, amazing groups in Detroit, the Marvelettes, a lot of uh, music that just um, – it, it soothed me. Yeah. And I would fall asleep with my transistor radio. Um, so I think that was part of the connection to music and the uh, the fact that it represented some kind of 
uh, representation of love. And your dad was an amateur photographer. Yeah, developed yeah. photographs and that sort of thing in the house, right? A serious amateur because, yeah, yeah but, well, because he had a real dark room. Right. And um, they were divorced, so it was in his house. Right. Not, and my uncle, his brother, so I would spend time on weekends with my dad in the dark room, sitting on a little stool. And as you see the image come up in the tray, uh, nowadays young people who create images have no idea what a dark room is necessarily. Right. And the magic. And how finicky they were, too. Yeah, it's, it was there, but there was a magical moment yeah. because it was just this piece of paper that you put in what appeared to be water, and then like an image came up. And if that image was, in fact, a photograph that he had taken of me, then I really <laughs> thought that was magic. So it, it's always been a connection for me that I knew no matter what I did in life, I would always make pictures. Uh, really? Yeah. yeah. It, it's interesting. You know, last night I saw a movie called Loving. And in this movie, Life magazine sends a photographer played by Michael Shannon to take photographs of a, a, of a, a couple that are having some troubles. I'm not giving away <clears> the plot of the story. But uh, in it... He is trying to snap photographs when he thinks that they're not looking because he wants to get a natural kind of thing. And I was thinking, wow, today this would be such a different thing because we know exactly what the picture looks like the second we take it. Here he was sort of guessing. And, and that's part of the skill of it, maybe. Uh, there is a skill because, um, you know, even when I do uh, selfies and um, I like to think I am the inventor of the selfie stick. Um, <laughs> no, I am. Really? Yeah, I patented it in like 2005. Uh, I didn't know this. Yeah, and so people always wonder how I can hold it up yeah. or do something and what I'm going to get. But I know what lens it is and what I'm going to see within that frame and how high or how low. So the practice of looking through a viewfinder um, and looking not at the center of a picture but at the corners of it, right. you know, you're looking at the full frame. I believe, you know, it's not only um, increased my experience of what life is because I don't just look to the center. I look to the edges. Right. And it's also saved my life because I ride a bicycle everywhere in New York City. And so I'm very used to uh, kind of having this peripheral vision that most normal people don't have. And um, I believe that you know, that um, uh, uh, experience of having done it for so long is part of what that life photographer in Loving uh, captured. He knew what he would get. But if you remember in the film, in fact, what he did when he first came in was he bonded. That's right. Uh, by sharing an experience of knowing how to, you know, uh, do something with the engine of the car. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there was really uh, the making of the picture uh, wasn't a matter of just, quote unquote, snapping at a particular moment. The making of a picture was creating an environment where a person who was incredibly distrusting mm -hmm. uh, would be uh, open enough to let this new person in their life be like a fly on the wall. And what he was able to do, which I hope I've been able to do with some of my photographs that you can see at the List Gallery, <laughs> is to 
become uh, the trusted fly on the wall. There's a portraiture where you do a lot of research and think about what you're going to do for the limited period of time that you have the individual or group in front of you. And then there are pictures that you want to go and create. And that's why the National Geographic, I think, has such a, uh, a powerful hold on not just America where they're located, but the rest of the mm-hmm. world. Um, in terms of people feeling like they're actually part of something. So in that movie, Loving, uh, which I guess now of you, all of you have to go see. It's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and it's a true story mm-hmm. about a couple named The Loving. I know, the, the Loving couple. And, and they were an interracial couple in Virginia in 1958, and their marriage was declared illegal. And it's well, it's not just that. What, what's surprising to people is that in the United States of America, where supposedly equality uh, is uh, implicit, mm-hmm. um, that up until uh, 1968, it w- due to this loving case, mm-hmm. it was illegal in 13 states for interracial marriage yeah. to take place. It, it, and the the lovely thing about this movie, we've only got a minute left in this segment. And, we, <laughs> and we've we're only going to talk bit, about this movie. But, <laughs> but we're not always going to talk about it. But the lovely thing about this movie is that it's it's called Loving. The last name of the couple is Loving, and it's about love. It's not about outrage. It's not about uh, people um, being angry and furious. There's there's hatred. No, it's much, about love. But it's about love, and that's what sold me on it. That and the performances. But we'll talk about we'll talk about <laughs> that you know another time. For years, you would not be called a rock and roll photographer. You did not want to be called that. Can I call you that today? I can tell you, Canada, Richard does his homework. Yes, you can call me that today only because even though, of course, I look incredibly young, I'm uh, going to be 69. So that when you say rock and roll now, it's like a sexy term. Right. <laughs> but I really, um, first of all, I resist all labels, yeah. but I really resisted it in my 30s, 40s, 50s. Well, 50s, I started to think, oh, it's kind of sexy. By 60, <laughs> I said, it is sexy. Uh, but prior to that, in the early days, um, I felt that the term, because what's a rock and roll photographer? I mean, I'm a portrait photographer and a documentary photographer, but I felt that it was very limiting. And most of the uh, photographers in that genre uh, were, in my opinion, uh, not really educated in the technical parts of photography. It doesn't mean they couldn't make good pictures. You can do that without knowing your tools, but I found that kind of like insulting. Did you also think, and maybe I'm off base on this, but you were one of the few women who were probably taking photographs around that time. Do you think that... I was the only one, Richard. You were the only one. No, I'm joking. <laughs> there were... <laughs> By a handful, a No, there was handful. Linda Eastman. Yeah. Yeah, there were, there were other women, but not that... Right, less yeah. than Lisa Robertson probably. No, she, no, no. Lisa was an interview... A journalist. She was a journalist. Yeah. So... Uh, but because that you were one of the few women, did you think that like rock and roll photographer implied like groupie or anything like that? Am I way off base? No, here? because there were other people that were called. I mean, Bob Gruen's a rock and yeah. roll photographer, yeah. but that's all Bob Gruen shot. Right. And I photographed other things from writers like Isaac Bashevis Singer to uh, Pulitzer Prize winners. You know, I did other work. Yeah. 
and uh, I covered uh, natural disasters, the earthquake in Mexico. So it was just limiting. Right. Um, and I didn't really see – I remember a photographer who loved calling himself a rock and roll photographer. He's no longer with us, Chuck Pullen. And Chuck said to me, you know, Lynn, we're documenting history. And I looked at him and I said, you're out of your mind. Um, <laughs> but in fact, you, you feel differently we now, were documenting yeah. history. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back now again. I mentioned Jim Osterberg. That's Iggy Pop. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you know him because you've known him since you were since before he was Iggy Pop. In fact, I think you were there when he was named Iggy Pop. Were you yes, not? Yeah. So tell me about that. Uh, we were standing in line to register for classes in Ann Arbor at the <laughs> University of Michigan. And pretty much everyone looked like uh, what you would expect someone to look like if they wanted to be in a sorority or fraternity. Right. And then there were these three people standing in line uh, next to each other. One was a young boy with big eyes and hair down to his shoulders and a striped shirt. And then there was uh, me in a black leather jacket, which is actually on the cover of my book, Rock and Roll Stories, that Bruce is wearing that jacket. Right. And the, Bruce Springsteen. Yes, Bruce, Bruce yes. Springsteen. And the story is in the book about that jacket, which I would love to tell that story. Do it now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I uh, that was my jacket, yeah. uh, and I had this band, The Walking Wounded. Uh, my hair it, it has always been very long and straight, but at that time I would set it in little pink curls for it to like just bush out. Right. And uh, then on the other uh, side of me, I was between these two guys. And we didn't know each other and we weren't talking, but somehow we were all there together. And, and found your way into standing in line together. We, yeah. we just, I don't know if we found, I was just in line and there right. we were, you know, there were the three of us and we didn't look like anybody else. Right. And the, uh, the other guy had what is now referred to as a Jufro. Uh, his name was David White, and he had uh, uh, he had an afro, yep. but he was a white person, yep. and he was Jewish, so we used to call it a Jewfro. But anyway, so uh, uh, this guy, David, looks at uh, Iggy, and he says, "Who is Jim?" Yeah. Jim and he Osterberg, says, yeah. you, your name's Iggy, and you, your name is famous, and me, I'm Panther, and we are the Panther, we are the White Panther Party. Wow. Yeah. And, and what was your reaction to that? Uh, from then on, everyone in college called me famous. Really? That was my name, yeah. And Iggy was Iggy, and, and Iggy Panther has... was Panther. And, and did you get to know, you got to know Iggy then, because I just met him for the first time a few weeks ago, and he was the sweetest guy. Always has been. And see, because his reputation had suggested to me that he wasn't for a little while, but but that's, I, I don't know from personal experience, but he always was, was he? Uh, well, the only times that I... Could imagine Iggy not being happens with a lot of individuals yeah. who are under stress, uh, feel taken advantage of. Uh, sometimes it's because they're stressed out from the drugs that they've been doing. So it was just a period of time, but mm -hmm. that might have made him more uh, short tempered. But yeah. Iggy was always, as a young person, 
um, uh, generous, sweet, manipulative, <laughs> and love to uh, make people feel off-center. Right, right. Well, uh, when I, as I say, when I met him, I didn't know what to expect, and I thought to myself, I was hosting a, a, a quick event with him here for the new movie Gimme Danger, which is the documentary about his life, or about the Stooges. And I said, this is either going to be awesome or awful, and I will expect nothing in between. I will accept <laughs> nothing in between. It's got to be one or the other. It, and was, it was great. And it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. He was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. he's, you know, he's extremely smart. Mm -hmm. And I also think that by the time, you know, Iggy and I are the same age. Yeah. And by the time you get here, uh, what's important and what isn't important becomes very clear. That struck me from talking about him because we were talking about the Stooges and how, uh, you know, they broke up in 1973 or four, and then there was a comeback and all the members of the band eventually got to play in that 12 years, everyone cycled through again. And he got emotional when he talked about it. And he said, they all graduated with honors. By the time we were done, the ones who survived, because not all did, but they all had houses, they all had money in the bank, they all, and, and, and everything that didn't happen the first time around happened for them. And he got emotional and he got choked up. And I thought he's, you know, uh, 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 this rock and roll dream for him took a long time to come true. But now as he sits here as a 69 year old man, it's, he can look back on it and say, well, it, it actually worked for me. We were talking about one of your books and on the cover of that book, Bruce Springsteen is wearing a jacket that was your jacket that you wore in a uh, university, leather jacket. Yeah, we, and you wanted to tell the story about it. Right, Richard. You had asked me about when I met Iggy and I yeah. was explaining what we were wearing when I met him. And that got me on the tangent of that's on the cover <laughs> of the book Rock and Roll Stories, which will be uh, the Brian List Gallery will have some of those. Yep. And since I'm going to be there tomorrow night from 6 to 9, yes, I will autograph <laughs> the books so that you can – Put them immediately on eBay and triple your money. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, the story uh, is that when I was doing uh, uh, pictures with anyone, I would think about what clothes they should be wearing and have the clothes there. And when I was photographing Bruce... Uh, that was my jacket, and I put it on him, and I took maybe a roll or so of film, and he really wasn't comfortable. It's the studs and everything. It's right, not yeah. him. He it's was a rock more and the roll beat jacket, up. yeah. It's a rock and roll jacket, yeah. and it works for the cover of Rock and Roll yeah. Stories for a number of reasons, uh, the main one being uh, later on um, uh, when Bruce was on the road during – Actually, it was before the Darkness Tour, yeah. but uh, Bruce and I both had a great love for Elvis Presley. Right. And we tried breaking into Elvis's house one night <laughs> over a fence, and a dog came out, and then people came out. And so I never got in. Right. Okay. Later on, Bruce went back at another time, and he did get in, but I never get in. Now, cut to many years later, and I'm being honored at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's probably about the year 2000. Uh, and I go in, and there had been a Bruce Springsteen exhibit there, and in a Lucite case is my jacket. <laughs> and they're saying it's Bruce's jacket, which it's not. It's my jacket, okay? <laughs> and at some point in my moving, I had decided after having that jacket since 1966 um, – 
let it go, right? Well, and I had this like sale at my loft. Well, whoever bought it sold it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sold it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as Bruce's jacket, (laughs) which he just so you know he hated that jacket, and it didn't fit him. I'm smaller than he is, Um, but in any case. Uh, now it's a number of years later, and I'm working on my book, Rock and Roll Stories, uh, and I want to tell the story of the jacket because I want to make it clear this is not Bruce's <laughs> jacket. So I call up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I said, Meredith, uh, do you still have that there, that yeah. uh, that uh, uh, exhibit that you had or pieces from it, and can I get a photograph of it? And she said, Oh, Lynn, I'm so sorry, but that exhibit is now at Elvis's in Memphis. So I said, you mean my jacket is in Elvis's house? So she said, yes. So I said, can you get a picture of it? So she had a picture taken. So finally, I feel like I have gotten into Elvis's house. It spent some time there. Yeah, in some weird, perverted way, I did get into you know, Elvis's house. See, everything comes around. Yes, it does. Everything so that story is around. in the book. I'm speaking with Lynn Goldsmith. Her photographs are on display at Toronto's Lisk Gallery, 112 Cumberland Street in Toronto until November 12th. You have photographed everybody. Uh, as a photographer, it, during the rock and roll years, let's talk about, uh, how did you get access to absolutely? Because I look and, and the photographs, seem to be at some are at the very beginnings of people's career when they weren't famous yet. How did you know? How did you, and, and some are when people are giant superstars, the Rolling Stones photographs, for instance. So how did you get uh, access? Um, well, first of all, it, it was easier in those days because there weren't that many people interested. Right. And generally speaking, other than the Rolling Stones, uh, uh, the better publications like Time, Newsweek, Life, they didn't run right. anything on rock and roll stars. Um, I was friends, because I also wrote songs, I was friends with a number of musicians. And I just did pictures of people because they were my friends and they were interesting people, right. like Patti Smith. As many people photographed Patti before she was ever known even as a poet. Um, so I and think, she lived with a photographer. Yeah. Robert Maplethorpe. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but the Robert Maplethorpe um, is a, a vision, is a real—I love telling people about how uh, Robert and I photographed Patti— um, simultaneously. We did have different cameras, but same room, same light. And in all of my pictures, I believe Patty looks very feminine and um, heterosexual. And if you look at Robert's pictures of Patty, they're m- much more masculine. And stark, I would imagine, the photographs. Well, it's just there was no difference in what mm-hmm. she was wearing or background right. or anything. So I was... It was always very clear to me that there was no competition. 
like your eye and the way you see someone, that's part of the magic mm-hmm. of photography. It comes out, you know, it gets manifested for other people to see how you see. Because Robert, when he looked at Patty, he saw something different than how I saw her. Yeah. So it wasn't a matter of oftentimes with photography, people think that there's a manipulation nowadays because of the retouching Photoshop things you can do. But the bottom line is it's about how you see another person. Is there anyone that you would say was a natural? I think I know the answer to this. Oh, Patty. Yeah, Patty. Yeah, yeah definitely. Patty, I would say, was my muse. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and why so? A number of reasons. One, she really loved being photographed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had always photographed my dolls who were very cooperative. <laughs> and they wore what I wanted them right. to wore. And Stayed in position. There wasn't a know. lot of collaboration. <laughs> but with Patty, you know, I could have ideas and dress her up, and then she'd bring some things. So it was just like two girls playing yeah, yeah. dollhouse together, you know. And um, it made me want to take pictures because it was like it was it was better than, I don't know, going out and having a soda. You right. know, I mean <laughs> you were you were making art together. Well Debbie Harry, I've heard that Debbie you talk too. about that was someone who was a, a natural in terms of this sort of thing. Well one of the things about Debbie though, uh, is that she had prior to uh, singing, uh, Chris actually got her to sing. Right, uh, Chris Stein. Chris Stein, of uh, yeah, and the songwriter of Blonde. Uh, Debbie was a cosmetologist, right. and she, uh, having worked in salons, really knew about hair and makeup, especially makeup. Right. And so I learned from Debbie um, how makeup could change the face and the lights and darks. With Patty, what I would learn in pictures was more about uh, projection of attitude. Not that Debbie didn't have it, but I didn't have that makeup hair experience mm-hmm. with Patty. So, you know, you learn something every time that leads you to, especially if you're self-taught, a more sophisticated approach to uh, helping people to to manifest a visual that fits, whether it's the music they're writing, the book they're writing, the image that they want other people to see them uh, fulfill. You were talking about how you could figure out how to project the image and the idea of that the person has. And my question would be, do you Find that during the shoot, or do you, before you ever take a frame, do you go, okay, in this one we're going to do hard-edged rock and roll singer, and that's what you want to project, or does it come out during the shoot as you're taking the photographs? Um, I think in life, uh, you have ideas of where you want to go, and then you remain open to the turns in the road, and that's exactly what happens in a photo shoot. You go in, if you're not If you just walk down that road in life with no plan whatsoever, um, you might not even see where the turns are. Uh, And so that's something that I've always felt that being um, prepared, you might have to throw it all out the window, but to be prepared like you prepare for tests in school, but you don't know what questions are really going to be asked. So that kind of um, thinking, and I always believe that 
when I uh, look at a film or a photograph, any visual that's presented to me, uh, that if it really has an impact, that the person who created it, generally speaking, it wasn't, it didn't just didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen. Well, it, well, well, it see, could I'm, happen by accident, but they were ready for but it. But they were ready for it. Well, and, and I wonder, though, if that has changed a little bit now, because my guess would be that when you're shooting on film, if you do a photo shoot with Patti Smith, you're not taking 4,000 photographs. Whereas on digital, you can just snap away. It doesn't matter how many, and then you cull it down from there. And sometimes happy accidents happen. Has it changed? Has digital made the idea of what you do different? Has it made it better or has it made it worse? Uh, both. Yeah. There's always pluses and minuses to everything. Part of the problem for me with digital is that back in the days of film, uh, and I was always conscious of the costs mm-hmm. of work, uh, I wanted to be really great at lighting so that I didn't have to retouch them right. Greg Gorman might have had another photographer in L.A. who did Hollywood stuff. He had budgets for retouching. There was no budget for retouching in rock and roll, right. you know. Uh, and so – and you wanted that image which appeared on a piece of film to be perfect as it is. Right. Part of the problem for me with digital is that I'll get sloppy because it's like, you know, recording yeah. where you say, okay, we'll fix it in the mix. Yeah. You know, we'll just add some reverb on that. Uh, And uh, so there's a certain level of craftsmanship that I can get sloppy about that you can that you can adjust later on your computer yeah and yeah. i should instant it's instant i really shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> well you, you mentioned lighting you had bob dylan light for you once yes i it did it wasn't lights. very successful <laughs> um bob uh i had a, a piano in my studio and when bob was in new york and if he felt comfortable enough i guess he came over and he would use my piano and I was packing up my equipment, and he said, where are you going? And I said, oh, I know. I walked in, and I said, okay. I don't. Want, I had people working for me, and I said, I don't want you to play too loudly because, you know, they're working. I pay them. This okay? may be the only person Just, to like, ever tell Bob Dylan to hold it down. <laughs> I did <laughs> because it was. They'd be on the other side of the door listening, and I'd be like – I told you you could come here and do this, but I don't want it to cost me money. Right. Right? Uh, and he said, where are you going? So I said, oh, I'm going to shoot Levon Helm. And he said, oh, I'll come with you. So I said, no, no, you're not coming with me. And he said, why? Why can't I come with you? I said, oh, well, here's what's going to happen, okay? It's for uh, the cover of the Chicago Times Sunday, whatever right. it is. And uh, I know I'm going to get like 20 minutes and I have to set up my lights and blah, blah, blah. And he'll see you and I'll be chopped liver. Yep. Okay. Yep. And away will go my 20 minutes. So you can't come. So he said, no, 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 I want to come. So I said, Okay, the only way you can come is if you don't talk and you take light readings. <laughs> and that's it, okay? You could talk when I'm all done. So we walk into Levon's dressing room, and of course, just like what I said would happen, happened, because Levon had been trying to call him ever since Bob was no longer 
part of like the basement yeah, yeah. in yeah, Woodstock yeah. and yeah. Bob wasn't returning the calls just because he doesn't return calls. <laughs> and so he was like, oh, Bob Dylan, you know. And I'm like, I knew this was going to happen. So um, I said, here's a light meter. I set up my lights. I let him talk a little. And I said, okay, take the light reading. Uh, and he knew how to do this because when we did shoots, he didn't like me to have an assistant. Right. So he would do it. He would do it, um, which is fine. Yep. You know, it made it more uh, of us doing yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but I could have used the help. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, uh, the worst part of this was. Bob, and I told Bob to, like, stay out of it because it was just a picture of Levon. Right. So this is a first, I think, where a photographer said to Bob, because <laughs> Bob picked up a guitar that was sitting there. We were backstage. There were guitars. Mm -hmm. And Bob jumps into the shot with Levon, who has a mandolin. Yeah. And I said, get out of the picture. <laughs> Meanwhile, Levon's dying to be photographed yeah. with Bob. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying, get out of the picture. And... Bob is laughing. Levon, like, is getting hysterical because of the way I'm talking to Bob. <laughs> so, yes, that photograph and that story is in Rock and Roll Stories, and I believe it's in the show at Brian Liss Gallery. That's an amazing story because Bob Dylan doesn't get told what to do very often. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, we've only got uh, about four minutes left. Let's talk about praying with Bono. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you tell that story in a few minutes? Uh, I'll try to go quickly. Okay. First of all, uh, you asked me earlier about how did I know, you know, whatever. Yeah. I have a certain, uh, I guess, ability to kind of figure out who's who might become big. Right. So uh, record labels like Columbia would ask me to listen to something, oh. and I would say, yes, I think so, whatever. So Chris Blackwell of Island Records wanted me to come with him to go see this band, U2. And uh, I was backstage with Chris before they went on, and they all, like, prayed together. But serious praying, yeah. not just the hand-holding. Yeah, no, they, they, yeah, it was serious them. praying. And uh, uh, then they came out on stage, and, you know, I looked at Blackwell and said, you know, they're horrible. Bono can't <laughs> dance. Do not sign this band. <laughs> so, obviously, I was quite wrong there. Um but uh, uh, anyway, uh, not uh, it was uh, a few years after that, um, a person who I had co-managed Grand Funk Railroad with, because I also did that. You did uh, two very classic album covers for them, at least. Oh, in, in, I did quite a few. I even killed them with Born to Die. Born I intentionally to die. In, killed them. I put them in coffins. In coffins on yeah. the front of the album. No, that yeah. was my, like... <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Andy suddenly died, and the next thing I knew, there was a knock on my door, and it was Bono. And he said, you know, let's get down on our knees and pray. And, you know, that wasn't really my cup of tea, but I was, like, just so impressed that he was that caring. Right. Um, it's not like he was a close friend of mine like Patty or Frank yeah. Zappa. Or, you know what I mean? I really didn't know him that well, but he heard about it, and he knew that this person meant a lot to me. And that was, you know, that will always m make him very uh, dear to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and it's those special moments, I guess, that, that you look back on now and say, 
I am a rock and roll photographer. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I like to think I'm just a photographer, but if people want to do that, it's fine because the reality is when I look at all my file cabinets of film, much less my digital files, the majority of my work has been uh, photographing musicians, whether it was uh, the concert pianist Israel Horowitz. uh, You know, there's a a range of musicians, but the bulk of it is rock and roll. And I'm very clear how, as a child, when my parents were divorced, it was rock and roll that made me feel connected uh, and it was little Richard, you know, who just uh, uh, made me realize, oh, my God, yeah. you know, life is like a – life is big. <laughs> and loud and, <laughs> and wild. Well, whatever it is. I didn't know what it was, but it was big. Yeah. <laughs> we have one minute left for you to tell me what makes a classic photograph. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was obnoxious. No, not at all. I, I think With the, the viewer, amount of classic photographs you've taken. I no, think, the uh, viewer makes a classic photograph. Yeah. It's what it means to them. And and it, you have no idea, right? When you take something, when you put things out there, you can't tell how people are going to respond. You can judge your own response to it. But do you sometimes find that pictures that you think are hmm, – end up being ones that really grab people? Uh, Yes, that's true. However, when I'm shooting and I know I hit it, little it's very bizarre, but little sounds come out of me. Really? Yeah. 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 I make sounds. And when I'm not getting it, you know, I'm very clear about that. I actually say, no, 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 (laughs) no, no. And there might be a person in the room where it could be a still life. Right. Uh, so I feel I know when I've gotten it. However, I've been fortunate enough that rock and roll has been uh, collected by museums now and mm-hmm. is considered, you know, investment quality fine art. And because of that, I have learned that certain people, a lot of people, have a connection to photographs that really I don't. Right. I mean. Uh, so well, I would imagine, and we're out of time, but I would imagine it's like music. It's subjective and, and it speaks to you or it doesn't. Hey, it's art. Uh, it's art. It's art. <laughs> that was Lynn Goldsmith. You know, if you think back and you think back to the cover of Patti Smith's Easter album or a lot of the Grand Funk Railroad albums or Sheik Your Booty by Frank Zappa or anything. I mean, she's done literally hundreds of album covers, you'll discover that you've been staring at her work pretty much your entire life. Lynn Goldsmith, I could have talked to her for another three hours and she would have had more amazing stories. I want to thank Lynn for coming by. Thanks to Rachel McAdams for coming by. She's on every screen in every theater across the country this weekend in Doctor Strange. So go check her out there. Most of all though, I want to thank you for coming by. Every single week, you come back, you visit, you bring us a pumpkin spice latte. I really appreciate it. But for right now, the House of Krauss is closing. You got to get out of here. Go see Doctor Strange. Go find some of Lynn Goldsmith's photographs and let your eyeballs dance through both of them. Thanks so much for coming by. Remember to come back next Monday. We put up a new show every single Monday, and you never know who's going to stop by for a visit.